Welcome, one and all, to RFK All the Way, your podcast for commentary on Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s presidential campaign. This is your host, Matthew Tower. And once again, I am joined by our special guest, the esteemed Lori Spencer. Lori is a JFK historian and an independent journalist. She's the co-host of Maverick News. Hi, Matthew. Thanks for having me back. We're getting into the second half of our future President Kennedy's launch speech that happened in Boston on Wednesday, April 19th, 2023. I was there and wow, was it mind blowing. So we're going to pick up where we left off and get right into the next topic, which is lockdowns. And I think there's really two major aspects of the lockdowns we're going to be discussing. The first is the impact on the economy and businesses, and then on kids and health. Let's start with the economic part. Bobby was saying he grew up during the great prosperity when the middle class became the biggest economic engine in the world from 1945 to 1975. But since then, we've had this erosion, this hollowing out of the middle class, a sort of a systematic attack. And he described the lockdowns during the pandemic as this coup de grace against the middle class. We saw the biggest shift in wealth in human history. And Bobby brought up a specific example here of a gentleman named Anthony Coldwell, a chef in Boston who lost his business that he'd spent his entire life working towards, 50 Kitchen. And it was just one example of what Bobby said was the 41% of Black businesses that were shut down most permanently. Yeah, that story about 50 Kitchen just broke my heart because I myself know several small businesses and several Black-owned businesses, especially restaurants and bars that had to close during the pandemic. Some of them were iconic places, you know, that had been open for 20, 30, 40, 50 years, had to close their doors. They just couldn't make it. All the PPP loans in the world couldn't save them. My friends faced the exact same thing that the guy who owned 50 Kitchen faced was, you know, the PPP loan's great, but how can you spend that money in that 90-day period that they gave you when you can't open your doors and you don't have any customers because everything's locked down? Some restaurants were able to do takeout only, but they couldn't survive on that. And it didn't justify having all those servers on the payroll. They had nothing to do. So, yeah, that was a total failure of President Trump's lockdown response to try and help people. I understand he was just trying to help. He was trying to compensate business owners for being forced to close, but it wasn't enough. And as we all know, a lot of big corporations gamed the PPP program. They weren't small businesses, but because they had franchises that could be qualified as small businesses, Each franchise location then qualified for a PPP loan. So you had major corporations, hotel chains, restaurant chains that really should have never qualified for PPP loans, but they got them. And a lot of rich folks were gaming the system. A lot of frauds were gaming the system. And as usual, it was the small business owner, the little guy who got left out of that process. Yeah. It's sort of this bizarre, absurdist moment when you're losing everything. You've got no customers. You've got nothing. And then the government says, here's $17,000, but you got to spend, you got to spend it all in eight weeks or you got to pay it back to us. But it's preposterous, right? Like this obviously does not make up for fundamentally losing the basis of the economics of your small business. 
right? Doesn't work. And then to hear about, just to finish Anthony Caldwell's story, he ended up bankrupt and owing 250K. I wonder if that meant he took out one of those EIDL loans. And then now he has to pay back that to the government, but he could never, you can't reboot your business if the government has essentially inserted itself into the flow of your customers and disrupted that. The government is standing there holding back the water, the flow of commerce. There's nothing you can do. To get into some of the the overall big picture, a couple points. One, as President, our future President Kennedy said, quoting President Truman, the buck stops here. The president has to be responsible for the final decision and not blame it on bureaucrats. So I think that was a pretty effective criticism against Trump's decision-making process here. And also, Bobby contrasted himself so well in terms of his ability to understand and go up against government bureaucracies, having spent a lifetime, a career litigating against them in their malfeasance. He gets it. He understands what the fundamental nature of the swamp is, possibly in a way that no one else in the political seat does. And not just the ability to understand it, but the ability to pick it apart and critically reform it, which is part of his great potential. You know, he said his campaign is based on ending the corrupt merger of state and corporate power. You have to, A, understand what is actually going on, which none of his peers really do, and have the experience and the ability to see what the change is and to make that change. He's bringing that to the table. So, The other thing is, you know, he brought up back on May 2nd, 600 doctors signed a letter saying, hey, this is not the right pandemic protocol. There was a letter saying, here's the way you do the pandemic protocol. You lock down for the sick, you protect the vulnerable, and you let everyone else get to work. So there was a protocol. It just wasn't followed by our president at the time. And remember, it wasn't followed by the World Health Organization either. And it was their own protocol. First, they were against lockdowns, and then they were for them, and then they were against them. Meanwhile, Sweden didn't fall for it. It's almost like there was this massive psyop, right? And Sweden did not fall for the psyop. So sorry, you don't get off the hook here, President Trump or anyone else. There were at least some governments who saw through all the smoke screens and recognized what needed to be done. And then we get into that contrast where, as Bobby said, Despite having 4.2% of the world population, the United States had 16% of the COVID deaths. So obviously, common sense standpoint, you don't even need a medical degree to just kind of look at those numbers and say, hmm, you know, say you must have done something wrong. Uh, we're right? like that. wrong. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This, is the, this was not effective. This is not a public health success story. In fact, the inversion of that, right? And then his other big point was about the concentration of wealth, where you had companies like Amazon, Facebook, Microsoft, who were conspiring with Trump's White House to censor people like Bobby, that those companies were profiting the most on the lockdowns. And while small businesses were being driven into oblivion and bankruptcy, Amazon was concentrating its ability to reach customers more and more, right? Because Mm -hmm. of its sort of impossible competitive landscape when Amazon has all the infrastructure needed to do the kind of home delivery stuff and small businesses that rely on foot traffic, the foot traffic's now gone. Let's just remember, think back to March 15th of 2020. That's when Trump announced that he was shutting down the federal government and then states followed suit, right? 
Trump tries to blame it on the states. He says that was the state's decision to shut down, but they were following the lead of the commander in chief, the president of the United States. When he says he's shutting down the federal government, every governor in the country followed him. That's why he's the leader. So, yes, that was an example in poor leadership. Remember, they told us at that time it was going to be 14 days to flatten the curve. Mm -hmm. We thought it was a very short term lockdown supposedly to give hospitals time to beef up their PPE, make sure they had everything they needed. And it was only supposed to last two weeks. And then 14 days to flatten the curve turned into two months and in some places, six months in other parts of the country, a year or longer. And in other parts of the world, they locked down much longer than we did. Like over in Europe, they were locked down for over a year in much of Europe. And China, what, they were locked down for almost two years, so more than two years, right? So, you know, if the United States, if, if the president is the leader of the free world, they're going to follow our lead. And the countries that did follow our lead in 2020 probably regret it now. Bringing up the question of leadership, this is a very important point to what America is and how we think think of ourselves, how we imagine ourselves on the global stage. We imagine ourselves as a leader, as a nation that leads in terms of democracy, freedom, human rights. But the reality of the last 60 years has very much contradicted that. I firmly believe under a president, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., we can and will become that leader again. We can lead from a place of love and wisdom and compassion for one another. And we can find a way to be that role model and to be a good partner to other countries such that once again, we will be thought of and appreciated the way we were under JFK's administration. So let's move on to the next part of the lockdowns was the way that they affected kids. And I'm going to highlight a few of Bobby's points here. I mean, this is just devastating data. Kids lost 22 IQ points. Kids have been missing their milestones. And the CDC is memory holding or whitewashing or change. It's, you know, it's, it's like in 1984 when Big Brother goes in and changes the historical record. Yes. The CDC is now saying that kids should be walking at 18 months instead of 12 months. Kids should have 50 words at 30 months instead of 24 months. Bobby said the CDC is covering up the problems that arose during the pandemic as a result of the lockdowns instead of fixing these problems and or just being honest, just telling the truth. Here's a really big one, the insight that child abuse seemed to drop because mm -hmm. that's reported by the schools and the schools were closed. But what was really going on, and we found out after kids went back to school, 55% of teens reported being abused during lockdowns. That's absolutely devastating. And 13% reported being physically abused. To just empathize with these kids, that they've got nowhere to go. I can't even imagine what these kids went through during the lockdowns. And then gaining lots of weight, not being able to exercise, the public authorities going into these basketball courts and literally removing the hoops making it impossible for kids to just go out and shoot hoops. It's just completely crazy. The final statistics, Lori, that he said we had, and I think this may have been among Black and minority communities specifically, if I got this part right, 25% of teens reported going hungry, 20% of teens had suicidal thoughts, and 9% attempted suicide. And suicide is now the largest cause of death amongst Black kids. This is just horrifying. 
It is. And it's unacceptable. And it affected adults, too. Uh, yeah. We saw domestic violence situations between couples was through the roof also during the pandemic. Same thing. This, you know, the abused spouse had no place to run, no place to go. It was very hard to even get a hotel room because most of all the hotels were closed. You know, where were you going to go? There was literally nowhere to go. And suicides, I knew, unfortunately, some people who did fall off the cliff, who didn't make it through the pandemic, through the lockdowns. And a friend of mine who survived and, and chose not to take his life was very suicidal in the first couple of weeks of the pandemic lockdowns. And get this, he kept calling the suicide hotline. And it was so overwhelmed with calls that he sat there on hold for two hours. And then he tried again a couple hours later and still couldn't get through. I mean, when someone's in crisis and, and they, he couldn't reach his therapist, therapist wasn't in the office. I talked him through it like any good wow. friend would, just kept him on the phone and talked him through. But it was up to us to save one another. But what do you do when you're stuck in a house where nobody supports you or somebody's abusing you? All your whole support network is gone, whether that's at school or at your job or wherever your support network of friends may be. We were all cut off from one another. You couldn't get a hug. Yeah, that's right. You were scared into not being physically close to others. And even my and friend that I talked through who was suicidal that night. We couldn't even do that in person. We had to do the whole thing over the phone yeah. because of the lockdowns. It puts stress on human relationships in every imaginable way. And a lot of people just couldn't cope. We lost so many to suicide alone just during the lockdowns. People who didn't die from COVID, they died from isolation, from suicide, from depression. Well, I just want to say, Lori, thank you so much for, you know, doing that, that work, that light work of being on the phone with your, your suicidal friend and trying to support them. And that's, I really appreciate you for doing that. And I have a unique perspective on this because I caught that first wave of COVID that came straight out of Wuhan back mm -hmm. in uh, mid-January of 2020 is when I got sick. That was before we even had a name for COVID. We had no treatments for COVID. If you went to the hospital like I did because you couldn't breathe, they had no idea how to treat you. They didn't even know what they were dealing with. I was diagnosed with a viral pneumonia of unknown origin. That's what they mm. called it. And they treated me as they would treat any patient with pneumonia. They didn't know it was COVID-19 they were dealing with. We didn't find out until months later when I was able to finally get an antibody test to confirm that, yeah, the infection I had was in fact COVID. But I too was, I was very sick. And even after three or four months, I wasn't getting better. I was one of the first people who had what you now call long COVID. We didn't have a name for it then. We just knew that we got sick, we almost died, and we never got better. We weren't feeling better. And here I am three years down the road, guys, and I've still got, you know, lingering neurological symptoms. Every organ of my body has been affected by long COVID. And I, I hope no one else out there gets it from a simple COVID infection. For some people, COVID is mild. It's like the common cold and you're over it and you're fine. Just like some people take the vaccine and they're fine. They don't have side effects. But others do. And it's sort of like that with long COVID. Some of us, and there doesn't seem to be any rhyme or reason to it, why some people become long haulers and some don't. But, you know, it's, it's at least 30% of people who've had COVID end up getting long COVID. And these are the things we didn't know, is what I'm saying, back in March of 2020. Now we know. Now, in hindsight, it's easy to look back and see where we made mistakes. But I tend to be more forgiving of anyone who might have 
fallen into the trap, the propaganda, the psyop about masking, about so many different things that we were told, vaccines too. We wanted to believe our public health officials were telling us the truth. We desperately needed good information. We needed good statistics that we could count on. I don't think we got those from the government a lot of the time either. I think they were fudging those too. And even Bobby Kennedy himself, early in the lockdowns, you know, was tweeting stuff like, hey, isn't it great that, you know, the planet is benefiting from our lockdown, right? It's good for the environment. There's not so much pollution. People aren't commuting to work every day in their cars. It's good for the planet. Um, But he quickly snapped out of it. He snapped out of it earlier than a lot of us did, you know, by April or May of 2020. I remember Bobby was out there already saying some very unpopular things about masks. He didn't wear a mask. He was kind of telling people, hey, I think they're trying to use this thing to shut us up. I think they're trying to use this as an Orwellian method of control, this pandemic. And that's when a lot of people started demonizing him and calling him crazy. And it turns out, I think he saw things a lot sooner than the rest of us did. You know, a lot of journalists early in the pandemic were saying, isn't it great for the fishes and the birds and the water and, and the air that the environment's benefiting from humans staying home, right? Saying that early in the pandemic. And yes, it's true. Sure, it's good for the planet, but it's bad for the people inhabiting the planet. It's a lockdown. Clearly, I've been reading Bobby's two books here. I've been jumping back and forth between them. One of his big points is the real protocol that worked and that we should have been following is early intervention with known reliable drugs that are effective, like ivermectin. And if that's done early in the course of COVID, it can kind of stop it in its tracks before it gets really bad, before someone ends up in the hospital. And that when people were going to the hospital and they were at a point where they were on a ventilator, that was really not the way to be approaching it. And the whole, the denial of ivermectin and other drugs as a viable option, part of that was because the emergency use authorization for the vaccines could not have been granted if there was a drug that could be used on that particular issue, right? There's actually a law that says you can't, you can't have an emergency use authorization for a vaccine if there is something effective. So this is why there was this sort of institutionalized unwillingness to recognize ivermectin and other drugs like that as an option. So I'd like to move on now, Lori, to censorship and the close down of rights, the obliteration of American rights. He talked about freedom of expression, gone, freedom of assembly, gone, freedom of speech, largely gone. We had behind the scenes, and we know this now, thank goodness, from, for example, the Twitter files from Matt Taibbi showing us what was actually happening, that the CIA and the FBI have been including for a very long time to rig social media platforms and ensure that certain objectionable speech could not be published. And this has obviously been going on with Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Bobby was deplatformed. Bobby had been putting stuff on Instagram early in the pandemic, and then his account got taken down when he started questioning the mainstream narrative. And his point being that, hey, look, the framers of the Constitution, they built that Constitution for hard times. They knew all about pandemics. They didn't put any exceptions. They did not say you get a right to a jury trial in cases or controversies exceeding $25, except when. There was no except what. There was no except in the case of war. There was no except in the case of internal strife or civil war. There's no except in the case of 
a pandemic. There's no exceptions to these things. And look at how effectively they psyoped us into thinking it was good that we were losing a, a whole bunch of these rights. Oh, gosh, we're not going to assemble because we could make each other sick. We're not going to into our places of worship because it could make us sick. So this is a good thing that this has all been being restricted. Many of us became compliant in the erosion and the destruction of our rights. You know, I'm a libertarian. And during the lockdowns, during the pandemic, the libertarian position was that the government should do nothing, like nothing about it. And of course, that made the left just shriek, oh my God, how can you do nothing? I mean, what kind of hard-hearted people are we? But, you know, it's true. There is no pandemic exception to the Constitution. That's our libertarian position on it. A lot of people thought we were nuts at the time. Maybe we were right. I don't know. I mean, that's, that's a personal decision. That's, that's your decision to make. But I will say this. We've had pandemics in the United States, as Bobby pointed out in his speech, since the beginning of the United States. There were always pandemics and epidemics. And we did nothing. Even during the Spanish flu of 1918, the United States government did nothing. There were no federal lockdowns. The government was open for business. World War I raged on. There was no pause in the war for a pandemic. In fact, that's how the pandemic spread so rapidly was through troop movements across Europe. There was no pandemic exception. There was no relief for the people from the federal government. Businesses were not closed, only in certain cities and states. You know, it was a local decision to do lockdowns. And some lockdowns happened during the Spanish flu. But if you just look at the historical examples of previous pandemics, the federal government literally did nothing about it. And I think Bobby's point was maybe that it was best to leave well enough alone. But that was a point of view that would have been you would have been excoriated for having back in 2020. If President Trump had said, well, we're going to do nothing about this. We're not going to lock down anything. We're not going to close anything. We're not going to compensate you. We're not going to send you a dollar. We're not going to do anything. That that would have been an unconscionable position in, in the minds of many. He would have been excoriated for it. Here's what I remember Bobby said in his speech about what would have been the right approach, right? He said that there should have been lockdowns around the sick, right? Okay. And then protecting the vulnerable and let everyone else go back to work. So that was what he described as the appropriate protocol. And I think he has yeah, a lot more quarantine. details about that. That's all he, it, the, it's, it's clearly a mixed approach, right? Of aligning your policy to the specifics of the circumstances of the person, their level of vulnerability, and so on. So that's not doing nothing. I think he had a very clear sort of policy outline. It was just a different policy and a policy that he thought would have been a lot more effective. And then you go back and look at, you know, Sweden and their policy was effective, right? Just in terms of what ultimately happened. And he also had a protocol that he outlined for how, how does this get treated and how do doctors talk to each other and share their approach and their successes. The next thing he pointed out is that we've got all these government bureaucracies that are essentially owned by the industries, NIH, EPA, CDC, FDA, DOT. And you look at something like the train wreck in East Palestine. This happened because we had a captive agency. The DOT is captive. And we need somebody who's going to stand up to these bureaucracies, as I mentioned earlier. We have terrible food because the food companies and the pesticide companies own the FDA. Bobby said, you need a president in this time of history, who will stand up to his bureaucracy. And I totally agree. So one of the most powerful anecdotes 
that Bobby raised to illustrate the corrupt merger of state and corporate power was that during a litigation against Monsanto, when they got these Monsanto papers as part of their lawsuit, they found out the head of the pesticide division of the EPA was working for Monsanto. And it's true in all of these agencies. Most politicians want to drain the swamp, but they don't know how to do so with sprawling bureaucracies of 30 to 40,000 people, people who've been there forever. These bureaucracies have their own culture. And so rather than fix it, the president will just install someone safe to run the agency. And here's another example. President Trump took a million dollars from Pfizer and appointed Scott Gottlieb, who was essentially a Pfizer lobbyist, and that Gottlieb ended up making $88 million from one vaccine and then left to join Pfizer's board. That's not draining the swamp. That is the swamp. So great example of what's wrong, the corrupt merger of state and corporate power, and how Bobby is positioned to transform that and dismantle it. So Bobby said we have a chronic disease epidemic in this country. Long COVID is now a chronic disease, so we can just add that to the long list of chronic diseases that Bobby talks about, and that so many of those, as he makes the case, are tied directly to Dr. Anthony Fauci's reign. We spend $4.3 trillion, and 84% of that goes to chronic disease, right? We have the highest chronic disease burden in the world. We didn't always have that. In the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, people were healthy in the United States relative today. You know, only 6% had chronic illness. By 1988, it became 12.8%. And now we're at 54% of kids have chronic illness. We have the sickest generation in history, the sickest kids on earth. Our children are plagued with obesity, neurological disease, speech delay, Tourette's, and autism. And autism went from one in 10,000 in Bobby's generation to one in 34 today. And some of these crooked regulators say, well, we're just noticing autism for the first time. And Bobby said, missing autism is like missing a train wreck. This is a completely dishonest lie. It's total nonsense to say that there was autism on any kind of meaningful basis in Bobby's generation when he was growing up. And just nobody noticed it because it's so clear, right? And the studies show that this autism epidemic is quite real. And if there had been widespread autism during Bobby's generation today, there would be lots of people as adults in their 60s, 70s, 80s who have this. And that's just not the case. Bobby said he has never personally seen anyone of his generation with nonverbal, non-toilet trained, headbanging autism, whereas he sees kids like that in the schools where his children go to school. So then the question is, what happened? And there was a red line in 1989 where this stuff went just completely nuts. And there are only so many possible culprits, whether they're the chemical toxins or... And he didn't say the V word. He didn't say vaccines. And I I do not want to claim to be in any way close to an expert on this. In fact, I have not done my due diligence on this because I don't have kids, but I know a lot of parents, you know, they have to go through that dilemma. Bobby wasn't always into this issue, but he came to it. And obviously this is one of the missions of children's health defense is to stand up for the rights of kids so that we don't have an autism epidemic in this country. And I want to be clear, I am not taking a position 
on that topic because it's not appropriate for me to do so because I don't have the basis to do so. Unlike issues of war and peace in the Ukraine war and the intelligence agencies, where I do have the education to make a whole bunch of extremely informed opinions. But I think Bobby's raising a very important question. I think for those people who, in a knee-jerk way, attack Bobby and they just dismiss him out of hand, it's like, let's slow down here for a moment. Let's just pause. Is it true or not that we have an autism epidemic in the United States? Is that true? Yes or no? Is it true that one in 34 kids have it today as compared to one in 10,000 when Bobby was born? And if that is true, what's causing it? That is a very important question to ask in a way that is respectful and thoughtful and where you're willing to question everything and you don't jump to any conclusions. Well, you know, Bobby has been advocating on this topic for a long time long before the COVID vaccines were a thing. I remember back in 2005 when he published a very controversial piece called Deadly Immunity. And it was published in Rolling Stone and I think Salon simultaneously. And of course, the mob came after those publishers. And in fact, I believe that article was later retracted, not by Bobby, but by the publishers, Rolling Stone and Salon. I believe they both took the article down or left it up and would put a disclaimer on it saying many of Mr. Kennedy's claims have not been independently verified, blah, 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 blah. I'll tell you a funny story that ties into him running for president. I was involved in a draft Kennedy campaign back in 2007. We were trying to convince him to run in 2008. And of course, one of the big issues that we knew if he did run that they were going to attack him on was his stance on vaccines, on the autism epidemic, you know, the mercury in the vaccines, that connection he was making. And I would constantly be sending him hit pieces that the media was doing on him on this topic and saying, you know, we got to respond to this. Because back then, when they would take a hit at him, he didn't respond. But back then, he was just like, "Uh, I'm not even going to address my critics about that. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. And he wouldn't respond usually when asked for comment by the press. Now, of course, he is responding. He is fighting back. Not only that, he's taking them to court. He's got lawsuits going right now against the Biden administration and 106 administration officials who lied to us, lied about him, censored what we were allowed to see. And so, yeah, he's coming for him now. He held his fire for a long time and he didn't strike back at his critics. But now I believe he's been totally vindicated and he should fight back. And he is. I think it's important for Bobby to stand up for himself and address his critics and do it in a reasoned and intelligent yet passionate way. And he's doing that. One of the things Bobby asked everybody during this speech, he said, why aren't we asking the question what happened in reference to both the epidemic of autism as well as this massive increase in chronic illness amongst our kids. The cost will be a trillion dollars per year to care for people with autism by the year 2040. When Bobby's talking, he's doing a couple of things. On one hand, yes, this is a political speech that will motivate and inspire people for change. He's also talking to us like an educator. He's having a conversation where we can start thinking critically about this, which is really different from the style of communication we hear from most politicians. Most politicians know what the position is, the intensely held opinion that a certain group of people have, and then they just speak to that because they know that's going to get them votes. That's not what's happening here. Bobby is speaking in a way that's a mix of educator, moderator, politician, and kind of 
a caring dad who's trying to get us to engage in this topic. We can all imagine we're around his dinner table and he's asking us the question about why did this happen? What's going on? And then we can engage in it. And I think he's going to be able to build the national conversation about kids' health and around a lot of other issues as well, which leads me into the next topic. Bobby said, we need to have a national conversation about the war in Ukraine, a mature conversation that allows for nuanced complexity, and we need to do it respectfully, right? So this is, have you, when has a politician said those kinds of words, setting the table for, here are the terms, before we even talk about the issue, we're going to talk about how we're going to talk about the issue. We're going to talk about what it means to be emotionally integrated, mature, respectful adults and citizens who want to together explore this topic so that we can collectively find the truth together. If we can collectively find the truth as in facts, reality, and or the moral truth and or the essence and or what's really going on, once we can sort of all get on the same page on the moral truths, the facts, the hidden agendas, all of it, then from there, we can, as a nation, move in the direction that is best, that is the best choice for America, for the world, for our people, for the Ukrainians, for the Russians, for everybody, right? So this is really important for a president to do. And I think this is very different. What we are seeing is not just a once in a generation, a once in a lifetime politician who, who is able to lead from the heart and create the safe space for a mature conversation. So he starts off right away and he says, we can't say one side are Nazis and the other side loves Putin, right? So the implication, I think what he's saying here is that those of us who are opposed to the current U.S. involvement in Ukraine, we are inflaming the situation if we say the pro-Ukraine folks, the folks who want to send more weapons to Ukraine are Nazis. And certainly the other side who is criticizing us and calls us Putin lovers or Putin appeasers, that's not helping. There is an irony here that for me, I am very much out as totally critical of the current U.S. role in this situation. I am not calling those who want to send weapons to Ukraine Nazis. I'm not doing that. I am saying, and I think this is very important, this is factual. This was widely reported by the U.S. and the U.K. media years ago before the current outbreak, the current escalation that began last year in 2022. Before that escalation, there was widespread reports about the neo-Nazi Azov battalions in Ukraine and these Banderites who worshipped Stepan Bandera, who was an actual Nazi collaborator and actually participated in genocide. Right. So this is just laying out facts, not name calling, but like, hey, there actually is a neo-Nazi element in Ukraine. This is factually true. And it is very concerning to the point where we used to have a law that banned arming those particular segments of the Ukrainian military, saying it is actually illegal for the United States to arm or fund the Azov Battalion. And in fact, also, there was a Facebook rule to my memory. This is what I read that Facebook said, hey, you can't post stuff that's glorifies the Azov Battalion and the elements of the Ukrainian military that are neo-Nazis. And then Facebook withdrew that mm -hmm, after right. this started. So right. anyway, so I think that's kind of interesting is that sort of that went down the memory hole. And this is not name calling. This is bringing up a fact. But anyway, I'll go through with the rest of what Bobby said. He said, 
everyone in the USA loves our country. We have to respect people's capacity to ask questions on both sides. I think it's very important for those of us who are critical to also hear the questions from the other side who are concerned with the Ukrainian position. So the first thing is, is this war in the U.S. national interest? Many of our most honored diplomats of the past say it's not. And this is something Bobby said, which for me is not in any way my concern personally. We don't want to push Russia closer to China. That was Bobby's comment. What's much more on the on my radar is it is number two. He said it is not in our national interest to get into a nuclear exchange with a country that has more nuclear weapons than the United States. Pretty basic. I don't, I, yeah, that's, you know. Yeah. How, how about World War World War Three? In the words of, Je- of President Biden, nuclear Armageddon. Nuclear Armageddon is not in anyone's interest. And I also think every human alive today and every human unborn into the future for all time is risking their existence over this conflict. This is this is not good. And Bobby said, we are in Ukraine for all the right reasons. We are there because we are a good people. President Lincoln said, America is a great nation because we are a good nation and we continue to be a good people. We are there because of our compassion for the Ukrainian people who have been brutalized and illegally invaded and who have shown extraordinary valor and courage defending their country, defending their values and beliefs in independence. Notice he did not say the word unprovoked. We discussed this on a previous episode of RFK All the Way. This was obviously a highly provoked war, and many others have said this, especially, for example, Professor John Mearsheimer, that NATO expansion over the course of many, many years was what provoked Russia into its current action because Russia understandably cannot tolerate Ukraine being part of NATO on its border. Furthermore, we also provoked this by our involvement in the coup in 2014 in Ukraine. But here's one of the most controversial things, if any, like I was on board with 98.5% of everything Bobby said in his speech. This speech was truly almost rapturous for me. It was like, finally, I'm listening to a politician say what is in my heart. And he shares my values and worldview. I want to complicate. I want to gently complicate what he said here about being in Ukraine for the right reasons, because we are good people. I think when he said that, my interpretation was he was speaking to those people who are coming from a good place, who are coming from a place of they have compassion for the suffering of the Ukrainians and they want to help. And to that extent, I do resonate with that of just sort of acknowledging there are people who have good intention. And also, and this is the very big and also, and this was where I would complicate this. When I was in college, both protesting against the Iraq war and academically studying the underpinnings of the Iraq war. When I was at UC Berkeley getting a peace and conflict studies degree, one of my classes, we read a book that was entitled, I believe, Humanitarian Arguments for War in Iraq. And it was a collection of essays. And some of them were conservatives, some of them were neocons, and some of them were so-called liberals who all had this idea that, hey, it doesn't really matter what the U.S. government is saying about why we should go to Iraq war, even if we're saying a whole bunch of stuff that may turn out to not be true, even if it's not true that Saddam has weapons of mass destruction. Here are the humanitarian reasons. We are going to spread democracy. And yes, we're going to be spreading it at the barrel of a gun. And yes, it's going to be messy. But when we remove Saddam Hussein, democracy will flourish. And all of these people who have been suffering under Saddam's rule, they will be liberated. 
So we will be greeted as liberators, not because of the WMD or any of that other stuff, but because these people will now be free. And of course, what did we learn? And those of us who are critics of the Iraq war, we knew this was going to happen. The road to hell is paved with those kinds of good intentions. So having a humanitarian belief is not, from my perspective, it's not a valid justification to do something that is so, so brutalizing as what we did in Iraq. And we're going to get into his criticism of the Iraq war actually in a moment. But also in this situation, I think he's trying to bring people on board who empathize with the Ukrainian suffering and are coming from that place of compassion and empathy. And I think that's what he was pointing to with with that particular part of his speech. As far as the Nazi element, it's very true. I'm a historian. I studied the Cold War period, and I've studied the history of Ukraine-Russia relations pretty in-depth. That Nazi ideology, what we now call Nazi ideology, perhaps more accurately should be called Ukrainian nationalist ideology, has been a thing there since the turn of the 20th century. They predated the Nazi party in Germany by some 30 years, but we're practicing what we now call Nazism, fascism. And of course, the Ukrainian nationalists historically, since 1917 forward, were opposed to the communists in the Soviet Union. Ukraine was part of the Soviet Union, and so there were always these skirmishes and civil wars going on between the two. You know, these two ideologies have been at war with each other for 100 years. And also, it's important to point out that the United States and the CIA specifically and Britain's MI6, we've been meddling in their affairs since the end of the Second World War and the beginning of the Cold War. We were actively recruiting and training and funding these Ukrainian nationalists, what we call the Nazis in Ukraine, from 1946, 47 forward. And we were using them as, you know, little bands to do guerrilla warfare against the Soviet Union, trying to affect regime change in Russia. What we're seeing play out now in many ways is the same old game that we've been playing for a long time, and it's the CIA that is behind all of it. Of course, nuclear weapons, when the Soviet Union you know, successfully obtained their nuclear weapons, that was a game changer. And so rather than, you know, the old strategy used to be these little guerrilla wars and covert ops and proxy wars like Afghanistan, rather than going directly toe to toe with the Ruskies on the battlefield, we've tried not to do that until now. And we're getting closer and closer and closer to that. We already know that our special forces are, in fact, doing battle in Ukraine. We have American citizens like Bobby's son, Connor who have gone over there and seen action in the International Legion. So, yeah, the next step is the draft and, you know, having to put more Americans in there. That seems to be where this is going unless somebody can put a stop to it. God forbid that that happened. I've been collecting a lot of feedback from people since Bobby's speech on Wednesday, just wanting to know what people thought of it. The number one complaint that I keep hearing from folks, and I don't blame them for feeling this way, is that they didn't like when he said Putin's invasion was illegal. That's a hot topic. That's a hot debate. Was it illegal? Was it not illegal? You could argue that it was. You could argue, on the other hand, that yes, it was provoked. And I was listening to Scott Ritter last night, his regular podcast, Ask the Inspector. And he was asked about that. And Scott, you know, has had a lot of nice things to say about Bobby. I know he supports Bobby. He likes Bobby a lot. 
But he said, but Bobby, you're just plain wrong on that one. You can always count on Scott to just tell it straight. And uh, he didn't mince words. He said, Bobby, you're just flat wrong on that one. It was not illegal. So that's how Scott feels about it. Bobby recently had Scott on his podcast, which was a great conversation. So, you know, I recommend yeah. folks watch that one. So let's keep going through Bobby's speech. And Bobby said, President Biden and his administration have slowly been revealing that actually our involvement is not what it seems. We're actually there for reasons other than alleged compassion for the Ukrainian people. If we are there to exhaust the Russians or regime change Russia, doesn't that mean the Ukraine is just a pawn in a geopolitical battle between two great superpowers? And our strategy is to put the flower of Ukrainian youth into an abattoir of death in order to exhaust Russia. And he said that because we've had quotes directly from Biden and senators and Lloyd Austin and other members of the United States government that have commented on President Putin cannot remain in power. We want to exhaust the Russians. We want the Ukrainians to fight to the last Ukrainian here. We want to degrade Russia's ability to fight. And we want Ukrainians to do it with our weapons. So there's a lot of actual on-the-record evidence to support that that's what's really going on here. Absolutely. I mean, we're, we're killing a generation of Ukrainians. If the numbers I'm hearing are correct, 300,000 since this war began, and that's just on the Ukrainian side. The Russian losses have been staggering too. Those numbers just make the Vietnam War look like child's play. It's all the reason why I'm so committed to stopping this war. And I did want to say as a follow-up, because not everyone may be aware of the CIA's long history of meddling in Ukraine and the origins of this current war, I just retweeted some of my own historical work on that topic. I've got all the historical documents there that were declassified under the Nazi War Crimes Disclosure Act that show you the whole history of how we've been doing this since 1945-46. And I encourage you to go read those and, and really get a feel for what the origins of this war are all about. Laura, you've done amazing historical research on the CIA's using of Ukrainians in this grand geopolitical war against Russia. And isn't it fascinating that our future president, Kennedy, chose the word pawn because it really ties in with the book, The Devil's Chessboard. And if Doesn't you have it? not yes. read The Devil's Chessboard right. about Alan Dulles, the CIA, and the rise of America's secret government, I strongly recommend that book because it will take you through the entire arc of what the CIA was what it became under Dulles, and how Alan Dulles used the CIA, unfortunately, to assassinate President John F. Kennedy. Ask yourself one question, everybody. Why weren't any Ukrainian Nazis who committed genocide prosecuted at Nuremberg in 1945? Ask yourself why. I'll tell you why. Because the Ukrainian nationalists were our friends. They were the friends of the United States. They were the friends of the British, the MI6, the CIA. We protected them. We shepherded them. We got them out of there in rat lines and we brought them over here. This is and, a long relationship, everybody, a long relationship. So that relationship between Alan Dulles and both German Nazis and the Ukrainian nationalists who were essentially Nazis, 
all that connects to where we are today and the CIA's current geopolitical strategy. So this is one of the, I think one of the real hearts of Bobby's speech is where he's connecting the 113 billion to Ukraine and the fact that his friend Keith Amato, who he has this lovely personal relationship with, and every week they eat oysters together that Bobby pays for because Keith can't afford to do so. Keith is now dropping down from $283 per month in food stamps to 25 bucks a month. Imagine that $25 a month and 30 million Americans are facing that preposterous reduction in that meager form of support. 15 million additional Americans are going to be dropped from Medicare and we're just printing money for these wars. When we spend our national wealth on foreign wars abroad, we cannot have a meaningful social safety net at home. As we learned from Martin Luther King, Bobby Kennedy Sr., all these themes are still repeating and still with us. And he said that the Iraq war plus its aftermath cost us $8 trillion. We spent $16 trillion during the lockdown, Bobby reported. So that's a total of $24 trillion. And we're borrowing money from China and Japan. And we're printing money to fund all of this. And it's paid off with inflation, which is a tax on the poor. So here we've got Keith and, and others on food stamps going to $25 a month, which is really not even a day of food. And meanwhile, basic foodstuffs are up 78% in the last year. Right here was the other part that connects to it is just this idea of America being the policeman of the world, which I think is a very horrible idea. Like it's a national idea that many Americans carry is that the United States is the policeman of the world and we must, quote unquote, keep the peace. And by the way, watch the movie Team America World Police by the South Park guys. If you haven't already, it's a pretty hilarious send up of that idea. But what's really going on, I think, is not policing, it's empire. And he said, we have. 800 bases around the world now. So if you look at a map and you look at all the 800 little dots, what you see is an empire. And we spend $880 billion per year on our military. We were supposed to get a peace dividend after the Soviet Union collapsed, but no, we're just, we're just running empire, running foreign wars. And the fundamental purpose of the intelligence agencies is to just keep a constant pipeline of war feeding the military industrial complex and their contractors. So instead of taking care of people at home, we are enriching the contractors, we are enriching the military industrial complex, and we are converting bodies into profits, whether they are the bodies of our people, the bodies of Ukrainians, the bodies of Russians, the bodies of Iraqis. We are finding ways to just keep generating and fabricating wars all around the world to enrich the military industrial complex at the cost of bankrupting our country with printing money. Well, you nailed it. I mean, I don't really have anything to add to that. It's 100% on point. I do want to say one thing that Bobby left out of his speech and probably it was just an oversight, but when he was talking about the end of the COVID federal emergency and the loss, you know, the ending of the SNAP benefits, you know, we got a temporary plus up during the pandemic, which got people up to as much as $281 a month maximum, that's being cut back. He said that Medicare is being cut back also, but he left out Medicaid. You know, the Medicaid program during COVID was greatly expanded to help people during the pandemic, but now that's going away also. And that's going to affect the poor 
and the disabled and, and millions and millions of Americans are about to lose their Medicaid next month. And he didn't mention that. I think it was just an oversight. Kind of a personal note related to this in, in terms of pop culture. Of course, one of the greatest American movies of all time, possibly the greatest, Star Wars. What was the core inspiration of Star Wars? Most people don't know this. It was the Vietnam War. And who was the empire? The United States. Who were the rebels? The Vietnamese. George Lucas has talked about this. So there is this reflection, this self-awareness that we have become this empire that we really don't want to be, that I think is latent and is not yet in the consciousness of the people. And I think Bobby can bring that consciousness forward. Bobby can bring it forward with love and care, because if you tell that truth in an angry way, people will shut down and they won't listen. But if you tell that truth with love and then present a different path, presented a possibility of being partners to the world, people will be able to hear that, at least I believe. He quoted John Quincy Adams, America does not go abroad in search of monsters to destroy. He mentioned President Eisenhower's famous warning in his farewell speech that the military-industrial complex could destroy American democracy. And ultimately, it did in 1963, I believe. I believe that was the CIA taking our democracy away from us in the Dallas coup on November 22nd, 1963. And he mentioned that during the civil rights movement, Dr. King broke with the civil rights movement and said, Ending the Vietnam War has to be the priority because there is a direct link between poverty, oppression, and violence at home and war abroad. As long as our major exports are weapons and war, we will never have a middle class. One of Dr. King's most important statements, in my opinion, was the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today is my own government. In other words, if you look at the period following the end of World War II, the United States has caused more combined wars, deaths, murders, regime changes, coups. The number of countries we've cooed where we've overthrown the government is dozens and dozens. I don't know the exact number, but it's enormous. So this whole dark path that we've been on ever since November 22nd, 1963, we have a chance now. We have a chance now to become a new country, a new America, I believe, under Bobby. He brought up one of the legacies of his uncle. What happened during the JFK administration in terms of foreign policy and the impact? We were helping foreign countries build infrastructure and develop themselves and doing so in partnership with the Peace Corps. We had Americans going abroad, not in military uniforms, but as civilians to work with people locally. And in foreign countries today, there are more statues, roads, hospitals, and universities named after JFK than after any other president. And then he said this, and this is so key, if foreign countries love the United States of America, that's good for our economy and for our security. Can you imagine a university named after George W. Bush in Iraq <laughs> or anywhere else in the oh Middle boy. East, right? You, you know, right? You see my point? So this whole idea of security, the idea that security comes from bombs and dropping bombs and guns, this is an inversion of both the truth and we have a past historical example to show us what is possible when we are partners and cooperators in the world instead of dominators and conquerors. Then he gets into a discussion about the CIA specifically, and he admits that his uncle got rolled. He brought up a couple examples of presidents getting rolled, and he said, 
His uncle got rolled. The CIA and the military complex convinced him to, in part, support the Bay of Pigs. Of course, JFK did not send in any American troops, but he did not stop them from doing what they were going to do with the, the Cuban exiles. But then he realized what was really going on midway through and that they were basically trying to entrap him into sending in U.S. air support to bomb Cuba. And he said, no way am I going to do this. And he realized he'd been rolled. He realized he'd been lied to. Alan Dulles, Charles Cabell, Richard Bissell. Louis Lemitzer, Curtis LeMay, they'd all lie to him. And so what did our president, John F. Kennedy, say? That he would shatter the CIA into a thousand pieces and scatter it to the winds. And of course, unfortunately, he didn't live to do that. And unfortunately, the CIA got him. Alan Dulles and all his cronies got him in Dealey Plaza on November 22nd, 1963. But he alerted us through his words to this danger. We became aware of what the CIA was all about in part because of his legacy and because of those around him who passed down those words to us. So we still know the danger that they represent. And that's right. No other American president ever said anything along those lines, never dared to. Well, I have a slight pushback for you on that, Lori. One month to the day after President Kennedy was assassinated, Harry Truman, who had signed the executive order to bring the CIA into existence, to create right. it out of its former um, version of itself, he wrote an op-ed that was published December 22nd, 1963, I believe it was in the Washington Post, where he argued that we needed to end the CIA's role in covert actions, end its role in anything other than simply the collection of intelligence and the transmission of intelligence to the executive branch. And he, in my opinion, reading between the lines, implied the possibility that the CIA had been responsible for James. Yeah, I mean, Truman is a perfect example of another president who got rolled. He got rolled into creating the national security state in 1947 when he created the CIA, when he created the NSA. I'm aware of that Washington Post op-ed, and it's interesting that right after Truman published that. Our friend Alan Dulles hopped on a plane, went down to Independence, Missouri, had a little meeting with Harry Truman. And after that, Harry Truman shut the hell up. He didn't say anything else about it. He let that one go. But my comment meant any sitting president, any current sure. sitting president, not a past president. You know, they all love to come out and, and say after, you know, many years later, then they cop to their mistakes they made as president and say, gosh, mea culpa, I didn't know any better. And Truman was just one of many who did that. And furthermore, Alan Dulles, what he did was he misrepresented Truman's op-ed. He lied and claimed that Truman had not intended to write what he wrote and that one of Truman's <laughs> assistants had wrote it and gotten Truman sort of not knowing what he was doing to sign it. And he claimed that Truman had said that to him, which was completely not true. So Alan Dulles was a consummate liar, right? Bobby did say that in his belief, there are many people at the CIA amongst the 22,000 employees there who are public servants with courage and idealism. And it's just that, unfortunately, a number of people kind of rise to the top and are in the tank for the military industrial complex, kind of poison the well. And that, those are my words. And that he has someone on his campaign who was a former spy, who's a, a top agent, Amaryllis. And I'm just hopeful that Bobby can lead the transition to the light. Um, on the yeah. off chance that Bobby might hear this later, or if I get a chance to tell him in person, I certainly will. But uh, I would like him to go ahead and finish 
the work that his uncle started when he said he was going to shatter the CIA into a thousand pieces and scatter it to the four winds. Um, I think we ought to go ahead and just do that. That's all. He also said the entire U.S. empire has just folded with what is going on in the Middle East right now, that this this whole strategy with the Sunni crescent, it's all fallen apart. And, you know, I personally think we need a completely new strategy. We need a, a strategy of cooperation. We need a strategy of partnership. And we also need a strategy of apologizing and telling the truth about what we've done in the history of this country. For example, with Iran, you know, with Iran, we cooed them. We kicked their president Mossadegh out. We orchestrated that whole thing. And then the Iranian people suffered for decades under the Shah. And there's so many examples like that. We need to tell the truth about our past to ourselves and to these foreign countries where we've done these kinds of things. And in his campaign launch ad, which you may have seen, he says that. He said, we're going to start telling the truth about the darker parts of our past and the genocide and the racism, not to blame but to repair and heal as best we can. And I think that's both true internally and externally. The most popular thing that was on a sign at the launch event was heal the divide. And I believe that through the process of telling the truth, the truth will set us free. The truth will set us free around the past and will help repair our relations with international countries. He says he's going to bring the troops home, close the bases, the military bases, remember we have 800 of them, that huge empire of military bases, and he's going to invest in the middle class again as president and make us an exemplary democracy again. And we are nothing like that. We are, remember, the corrupt merger of state and corporate power. It runs through everything in the United States, whether it's big pharma or the military industrial complex plus the CIA, right? There it is, the corrupt merger of state and corporate power. And there is a word for that. That word is fascism. And I'm not saying it's Nazi Germany. Just to be clear, I'm not saying it's like Italy under Mussolini because it's a different kind of fascism. What those countries were were overt fascism, where it was obvious what was going on. Here, what we have is covert fascism because the media is so controlled by these companies, by the corporations who are then tied in that corrupt merger of state and corporate power. The media is literally lying. They're being told what to say. They're being told they must say things like... Russia's invasion of Ukraine was unprovoked. They must say, remember, right after Nord Stream was blown up, Russia blew up the Nord Stream pipeline. They're being told what to say. And then the American people believe it because they want to believe that they're free and they want to believe they're being told the truth, but they're not. And that's becoming more clear all the time. He also said, I don't want the Democratic Party to be the party of fear and pharma and war and censorship. I believe the Democratic Party is the most lost it has been at any time since 1968, when Lyndon Johnson was deeply unpopular due to the Vietnam War. And the Democratic Party now represents the opposite of the ideals that many Democrats in the past would have professed to represent. And then he says, we have to be more than just neocons with woke bobbleheads. We need to stand up to corporations and war. We need to put our kids first. And that's what a Kennedy Democrat is. So he's creating a new category here. And we had signs there that said, I'm a Kennedy Democrat. This is a new kind of Democrat, but it's also an old kind of Democrat because we're resurrecting the democratic values of FDR, JFK, RFK, and Dr. King. And he's been preparing for this role his whole life because of suing all of these agencies prepares him to have the ability to critically think and engage, disrupt, and create real systemic change in these various government agencies that have this corrupt merger 
of state and corporate power. He said, I'm not safe for the vested interests. My job is to keep you safe. And then talked about his father showing him, fathering him to hold the value that his people are the people who are poor. People on the Native American reservations, people of color, people who he said, quote, I was in a tar paper shack smaller than this dining room and the kids only got one meal a day. And Bobby Sr. said to him, when you get older, I want you to help these people, right? So these are your people, Bobby Sr. told him, these are Kennedy people. And the last thing he said is, you give me a piece of ground and a sword, and I'm going to take back this country with your help, the help of all the homeless Republicans and Democrats and independents who are Americans first. And that is the essence of this campaign. This is about restoring America, rebooting America, creating USA 2.0. USA 2.0, leaving behind whatever it was that was created on November 22nd, 1963. I call it USCIA. I believe we've been living in USCIA since November 22nd, 1963. I believe when we have our new president, Kennedy, we're going to get USA 2.0. And what we're going to do is transcend party ideology and, and party loyalty When this country was founded, say what you will about the founders, they had plenty of flaws. But one thing is they all came together as Americans. They were not driven apart by different political tribes in the early days. They knew they had to to just be Americans to found the United States of America. And I think what's going to happen is people are going to realize future President Kennedy's campaign is about being Americans again and for the first time in a certain way in creating USA 2.0. There was such a long speech that Bobby made. It took us two episodes to get through the whole thing. I wanted to leave you, as I often do, with a quote, which ties back to where Bobby closed his speech on Wednesday night when he was talking about the Kennedy people, those of us who are just the general public, those of us who can't afford lobbyists to represent our interests. I wanted to show you a quote from a speech that President Kennedy gave to the United Auto Workers in May of 1962. And it's one of my favorite speeches, and I love this part. He said, Now I know that there are some people who say that this isn't the business of the President of the United States, who believe that the President of the United States should be an honorary chairman of a great fraternal organization and confine himself to ceremonial functions. But that is not what the Constitution says. And I did not run for President of the United States to fulfill that office in that way. Harry Truman once said that there are 14 or 15 million Americans who have the resources to have representatives in Washington to protect their interests, and that the interests of the great mass of other people, the 150 or 60 million, is the responsibility of the President of the United States, and I propose to fulfill it. And there are those who say, stay out of this area. It would would be all right if we were in a national emergency or a war. Well, what do they think we are in? And what period of history do they believe this country has reached? What do they believe is occurring all over the world? Merely because vast armies do not march against each other, does anyone think that our danger is less immediate or the struggle less ferocious? So I would encourage everyone to go read or watch that entire speech. That is the United Auto Workers Conference of May 8th, 1962. And it's an underrated and often forgotten speech. I thought it was one of his best. And it, you know, it's so relevant right now to where we are at the moment and everything that Bobby's speech culminated in on Wednesday night. 
Matthew, wonderful job. And uh, thank you for attending Bobby's event Wednesday. I know you wouldn't miss it for the world. And what an amazing way to kick off this campaign. One thing I wanted to point out too about that speech before I go, what I thought was probably the most remarkable thing was he, he stood up there and he talked for two hours straight without teleprompters, without a script without even written notes that I could see. I didn't see any paper on the podium at all. That was just from the heart. And I've never in my lifetime seen a presidential candidate come out and give any speech that wasn't carefully crafted and scripted by a whole team of speechwriters. It was remarkable. I've just never seen anything like that in my entire life. And I thought that was so cool. I got to tell you, I'm hard to impress. I'm a tough critic, but I thought that was so, so cool. And I think that's what impressed me most. Lori, I I couldn't possibly agree more. I mean, that was the most moving speech I have ever heard. And I thank you so much for presencing that quote from JFK's speech before, because it just reminds me of what has been that was beautiful and inspirational and what can be again someday for us to have our president who can speak in such glorious poetry to inspire us, to move us, and tell us the truth. Tell us the deep truth that we need to hear to come together as Americans and create and forge a new nation. For anyone here who has yet to watch the fullness of Bobby Kennedy's launch speech, I encourage you to go to Kennedy24.com. Click on videos. And what you're going to see in this speech is that it is the basis of his campaign truly is uniting people by telling the truth, being honest, and being Americans. On Twitter, follow at RFK All The Way USA. Again, that's at RFK All The Way USA. Visit podcast website, www.rfkalltheway.com. That's rfkalltheway.com. Follow our guest, Lori Spencer, at Real Lori Spencer on Twitter. This podcast is independent from and does not speak for Kennedy24. Visit kennedy24.com to watch videos, sign up for updates, volunteer, and or contribute funds. Subscribe to this podcast, turn on your notifications, and see you on the next one. So, Lori, I'm going to wish you a good night. Thanks, Matthew. Thank you so much, Lori.